0: When you consider a, a, a nuclear explosion, the, the actual explosion of the weapon is only a, a portion of the damaging effects that such an attack would have. There's also the, the fallout to be considered. A nuclear fallout is much like the fallout of any other explosion. It's, it's the dust and debris that's taken up in the, the fire cloud, except that fallout from a nuclear explosion is radioactive, In a nuclear explosion, thousands of tons of dirt and debris would be drawn upward in the initial fireball from the explosion. But then during the the cooling process, the unstable atoms created by the nuclear fission would blend with the debris and other things, and and it would create the nuclear fallout, which can be so devastating. And nuclear fallout, that the cloud can... Travel for for miles and miles. In fact, uh, up to 10, 12, 15 miles at a time. And and so you're really not safe just because you're not near the original explosion. That cloud, it, it's said to to give you about a window of, of 15 minutes to seek shelter from that. And I actually, was watching a, a YouTube video about how to survive a nuclear explosion today in my office. And I was looking around my office, going, "This is not where I want to be if there's a nuclear explosion." But they say about a foot of concrete or a foot of, of dirt can, can provide uh, sufficient shelter for the, the fallout. And they say you have about 15 minutes to find shelter. And then after you found shelter, the nuclear fallout gives out off about half of its energy within the first hour. So the, the radioactive levels have decreased by about 50% after one hour. And then by the end of the first day, it's gone down by about 80%. And that's why FEMA and others, if you look at the recommendations, if you have a fallout shelter, they'll recommend that you have enough supplies, food and water for up to two weeks because by that time they believe that there won't be any more harmful radiation to be concerned about from the fallout. You know, there's another type of fallout though that can be just as, as dangerous and that's the fallout that we have from sin. David's sin has been forgiven through his confession and repentance, but the damaging effects of his sin are still ongoing. And in this chapter, we're going to see some of those damaging effects on full display. To set the stage, I want to remind us of the consequences from 2 Samuel chapter 12 of Nathan's sin or David's sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 10, it said this, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Now some of those consequences are going to continue to roll out in the coming weeks. As we continue to study the the life of David and the reign of David. But some of them begin to emerge even in chapter 13. Right on the heels of David's sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1 opens up this way. It says, now, some of your translations may say, and it came to pass after this. It's a marker of just ambiguous time. It's it's some amount of time after David's sin with Bathsheba. Absalom, it says, David's son had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So as we get into the the text, we get into this chapter, right away we're introduced to some significant characters, some that we know, others that we don't. Amnon is a name that we're not super familiar with at this point, but this was David's firstborn son, born to him by Ahinoam. Ahinoam, we first encounter back in 1 Samuel chapter 25, Verse 43, David married Ahinoam at the same time that he married uh, Abigail, the wife of Nabal. And so Ahinoam has been with David for quite some time while David was on the run in the land of the Philistines, while David was fleeing for his life, running from Saul. She was with him there. and, And then when David was installed as king in Hebron, that's when Amnon, his firstborn son, was born to him by Ahinoam. But then there's this other one, Tamar. And Tamar is, it says, the sister of Absalom. So this is a a half-sister of Amnon, not his full-blooded sister, but the full-blooded sister of Absalom. And Tamar's mom was a woman named Makah. And she's mentioned in 2 Samuel 3, 3, but outside of that, we really don't know a whole lot about this woman, just one of David's wives. She bore to him Tamar and Absalom. Well, one day Amnon takes notice of his sister in a way that uh, we would cringe at, right? He finds out that he's attracted to her that she's beautiful to him and he becomes frustrated over the seeming impossibility of seeing his lust for his half sister satisfied and what he was up against he was he was up against three challenges that led him to say this thing is impossible the first challenge he was up against was her virginity Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 13 through 21 very clearly and explicitly promote virginity with those that are unbetrothed. It talks about the penalty for a woman if she was found to have slept with a man before she was married and what would happen there. And so uh, as Amnon was looking at his half-sister and lusting after her, he realized that this would be a grave thing to sleep with her since she was a virgin. So that was one thing. The second thing was incest. And, and we might say, well, that's the, the big one in all this, isn't it? And, and yes, it is. And in fact, it was even during that time as well. I know sometimes we can get confused about whether or not that was considered okay back then. But if we go back to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9, we read this. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. So there's no question about this. Incest is wrong. It's it's against God's law, against God's command. And so that's the second thing that he's up against, her virginity. And then secondly, she's his sister, his half-sister. And the, the law strictly prohibited him from having any sort of sexual relations with her. And the third thing that he was up against was that the wives of each king were kept in their own dwelling and that their daughters were kept in even greater seclusion. So it's not like he had a whole lot of interaction with her. And so as he would see her, whenever he would see her, his lust was enraged and he found himself frustrated. Well, we see that that Tamar is represented as somebody who's chaste, who's a a virgin, who is following after God's law in that regard. And she's juxtaposed here to Amnon because what we see in Amnon is almost like an animal in heat at this point, completely consumed with his lust to the point that it says in the text that he makes himself sick, over his half-sister. There's parallels all over this account that that go back to Genesis chapter 34. And in Genesis chapter 34, something that we just read not too long ago in our DBR, you had the story of Shechem and Dinah. Shechem was a a Hivite who raped Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters, and it it led to the anger from Jacob's sons. And there's so many parallels here, including this whole picture of the, the overwhelming lust That is experienced here by Amnon. Well, it says in verse two that he was tormented by this lust. That word tormented in the Hebrew meant depressed, anxious, distressed, constricted. It's it's actually a word that meant narrowing, to be narrowed by. And so he's feeling like he's being pinched in by all these constraints. You can't have her, Amnon. But he's feeling like he wants her and that's all that he can think about. And so he is tormented by this. His lust is harassing him because of this unattainable desire that he had for his half-sister. Again, it leads him to feel ill over it. And some commentators said that, that he's lovesick. And I think that's, I, I, I think that misses the mark. This is not lovesickness. This is not a, a cute puppy dog infatuation. This is disgusting is what this is. I am not as sick because of the angst that he feels. Because the angst that he feels over the inability to satisfy the lust of his flesh. To satisfy his sin but then we come to verse three and it says this, but Amnon had a friend. Sometimes in scripture, there's good buts, right? Ephesians 2, 4, but God, right? That's one that we all stand up and say, praise God for the contrast. This is not a good contrast. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king! Why are you so haggard, morning after morning? So it's it's made him to the point where it's visibly upsetting him. His friends, the people in his court, the people around him are noticing a difference in Amnon. Such that Jonadab says, "What is wrong with you? Why are you acting this way?" Amnon said to him, "I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister." Jonadab said to him, should have said to him, "Dude, that's that's gross. Stop. Knock that off. Right." But he doesn't. He says, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. With friends like Jonadab, who needs enemies, right? I mean, this guy is the lowest of the low. Not only was his counsel despicable, but his motivation was atrocious as as well. It says there in the text in verse three that he was a crafty man. He's a shrewd man. It's it's actually a word that suggests wisdom here, but wisdom not from a, a godly sense, but from a worldly sense. That from a worldly sense, this guy Jonadab, he was he was shrewd. He knew what he was doing. In fact, there's some that believe that he was not only uh, stacking the, the odds in favor of himself with Amnon, but also with Absalom, that he may have been conspiring with Absalom throughout this whole thing to see that Amnon was put to death. Why would Absalom want Amnon to be put to death? to open up the, the door to the throne, right? And that we don't know what happened to the second brother in between Amnon and Absalom because it's not recorded for us, but it's it's clear from later events that, that Absalom, after the death of Amnon, would have been the next one to the throne. So it's, it's possible that Jonadab is playing multiple angles here, saying, you know what, if I make things go well for Amnon, Amnon, if he becomes the king, he'll think highly of me. But you know what, if things don't go well for him, and this all has bad fallout, I'll go over here and buddy up to Absalom too. That way when, when Absalom's made king, then I'll be uh, given position and title and prestige as well. So this guy is, is a wretch, is what he is. And the plan is hatched to overcome the barriers that made this thing seem so impossible to Amnon in the first place. The suggestion is made, we'll draw her out of seclusion by feigning an illness. Pretend that you're sick. Pretend that you're so sick that your father, the king, is going to come see if you're okay. And when it comes to see if you're okay, ask that your sister come and attend to your needs. To bake the bread, to bake the the food in front of you, in your sight. Well, Amnon listens to the unwise counsel of Jonadab and carries out his plan exactly as it had been proposed. We pick up in verse 8. And it says, so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And, And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said, come and lie with me, my sister. And so here you have the the plan working itself out. And the parallels with David are, are really unavoidable here. David was on the balcony and saw Bathsheba and David lusted after Bathsheba. And so David took Bathsheba. Here you have Amnon, David's son. He sees Tamar. He desires and lusts after Tamar. And so he takes Tamar. The sins of the father visited on the following generation. And there's another parallel as well. You remember what God told David through Nathan, right? He told David, look, I gave you so much. I put you as king over all of Israel. What would you need that I wouldn't have given to you and yet you took something that wasn't yours to take? And here you have Amnon. He is the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. This guy's not a slouch. He's not struggling in life. He's got the things that he needs. His needs are being met and yet in his lust, in his sin, he says, but I want what I can't have. And he goes out and takes it. In verse 12, Tamar responds and answers him and says, no, my brother, do not violate. That word violate. It's also used in Genesis 34. Again, Shechem and Dinah, that story there. And it's a word that means to rape. Do not rape me. Do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. That outrageous thing—it's—it's a—the idea there is something that's sacrilegious. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. And, and she's pleading. She's begging him, "Don't do this." As he has her in his grasp, notice how many times she says, "Don't, no, stop." She says, "No, my brother, do not do this. This is not done in Israel. Do not do this." This was rape, plain and simple. There's no. Dressing this up as anything but that. In verse 13, she even tries to pierce the veil of his blind lust. She says in verse 13, As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She appeals to three things here. First, she says, if, if you really care about me, think about what this is going to do to me. This is going to leave me humiliated, shamed, embarrassed, disgraced, and I'm going to have nowhere to go. And then she appeals to to his own pride. She says, look, if you go through with this, think about what you're giving up. You're going to become, go from being the the heir of the throne to being an outrageous fool in Israel. She uses the same Hebrew root word that's the the name of Nabal, fool. She says, you're going to be a, a fool to an extraordinary degree in Israel. And then the third thing that she appeals to, and I think this is just a last ditch desperation here. She says, just ask David and maybe, maybe our father will give me to you as, as absurd as that is. But I think that was her trying to just buy some time to get away. I don't think David would have blessed that union. I think David knew enough to say this is wrong, this should never happen. But I think in her mind, she's desperate at this point. She's looking for something to derail the, the lust. That has her in his grasp. But at this point, Amnon was long past being reasoned out of his sin. He was on, in a full-on lust-fueled pursuit. And in verse 14, Amnon rapes Tamar, his half-sister. Sin is it's powerful. It is. temptation and, and those things that entice us are powerful. We don't give in to sin because there's nothing better to do. We give in to sin because of its appeal. And that's where the power of it lies. And sometimes that appeal can so cloud our discernment that we do whatever it takes to see that lust satisfied. It's point number one for us tonight. It's this. Beware of the blinding power of lust. Beware of the blinding power of lust. And again, this is all part of the fallout of David's fall, the, the fallout of David's sin. David fell prey to this, and now his son is falling prey to the same thing. In this instance, it's sexual lust. In David's situation, it was sexual lust. But this principle, the blinding power of lust is true of any lust. It can be the lust for power that can lead us to compromise, that can lead us to step on people, that can lead us to break relationships, that can lead us to, to be prideful and arrogant. It can be a lust for prestige for position that can lead us to materialism that can lead us to whatever it may be that we put our confidence in something other than in Christ. It can be a lust for possessions. I have to have that. And so whatever I need to do to get that, that's what I'm going to do. Even if it means sin, it can be a lust for revenge. We've already seen that in David's story. We're going to see that even in the rest of this chapter and and moving on as well. A lust for revenge that chooses to ignore biblical principles and say, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. It can also just be a lust to escape reality. Just the, the, the burden of life. The difficult situation we find ourselves in. We can escape through drugs or through alcohol or through pornography or or even just through mindless entertainment, just sitting down in front of the TV and turning it on and letting nonsense just wash over us. Because when we're doing those things, we don't have to think about tomorrow. We don't have to think about where the next paycheck's coming from. We don't have to think about our relationship with our wife. We don't have to think about our child who's not walking with Christ. Those lusts, they, they can blind us. Whereas when we're in our our right mind, we would think to ourselves, I can't believe I would ever do that. Amnon knew, knew it was wrong to lust after his sister. He knew it was wrong to rape. He knew it was wrong to steal her virginity. And he knew it was wrong to deceive to make all of this happen. The first two verses of chapter 13 make that abundantly clear to us. That's why he was angst ridden and sick over this. But like his father, David, before him, he didn't care. He didn't care. This is part of the continued tragedy of David's sin. What David modeled Amnon mimics. The principle for us is this. When lust is given free reign, it will obscure our discernment. And cause us to do things we never imagined we would. When lust is just let go in our lives. When when it's not checked. When we just open the floodgates and say, I'm just going to give myself over to this desire that I have. It's going to cloud our judgment. And those things that we say, I would never do this. I would never do this. I would never cross that line. I would never go this far. All of a sudden we find ourselves way beyond those lines. This week I came across a couple of images that reminded me of the blinding power of lust. Even in a shark cage, I'm not getting in the water with a great white shark. It's not happening, okay? I just, no. This is definitely not going to happen. These are not photoshopped. This was recently, apparently. This was in Hawaii, and this is one of the greatest, the the, the biggest great white sharks that's ever been found before right and you've got that person who doesn't want to live very much longer (laughs) without the cage in the water touching the shark (laughs) but then there's this one hey that's not enough let me get right in front of you let me smell the breath, right like what what does the the inside of the great white's mouth look like there's few people who know what that answer is and and who would say yes this is a good idea right this is suicidal And in our right mind, unless you're that person, maybe some of you guys are out there like, sign me up. When do I do that? But for for most of us, in our right minds, we would never do that. We would never do that. But that's what it can be like when we enter into our our lust-fueled sin. We We give way to it. We say, okay, fine, let me jump in the water with the great white. Because think about the pictures. Think about the stories. Think about how awesome this is going to be. And we don't realize the the danger that we're in in the meantime. So as we're thinking about that and and that concept of guarding against the, the blindness that comes with our lust, what do we need to do? Well, first, be vigilant against every temptation. Be vigilant against every temptation. James talks about the process of sin, right? He says, temptation, when it gives birth, gives birth to sin, which leads to death. And so there's an opportunity for us. And we preached on that back in 2 Samuel chapter 11 for us to stop the progression of sin before it it culminates. That involves us knowing when we are entering into, when we are experiencing temptation and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Second, Similar idea, similar thought, but we need to take every sin seriously. Take every sin seriously. Sometimes we might have one big sin in our life or two big sins in our life. Those sins that keep rearing their ugly heads in our lives. And, and we might focus so much attention on those. We don't worry about the, the small sins in our lives. But that mindset that says it's no big deal. No big deal is the fertilizer for sin to explode in our lives. So we have to take every sin seriously. Third, respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. When you feel conviction, respond. Respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's never too late to repent. It's always the right answer to stop, confess, and repent. Always. Always. forth, pack your mind with scripture. Pack your mind with scripture. Jesus said the good man out of the good good deposit in his heart brings forth good things, right? The evil man out of the evil within him brings forth evil things. So there's a proactive guarding that filling our minds with scripture has. But it's also this principle. It's much harder to sin when we have to blow through scripture after scripture after scripture that the Holy Spirit will run through our minds as we're on the road down towards sin. So the more scriptures you can pack your mind with, the more blockades you're gonna have to just knock down in that lust to get to where you wanna go. Finally, guard against isolation. Isolation. Guard against isolation. Lust thrives in the dark where we think no one knows. Amnon surrounded himself with people. It's not that Amnon was totally alone, but he surrounded himself with the wrong people. So you can be isolated and have plenty of people around you. The isolation I'm talking about here is isolating yourself from godly brothers in Christ who care about you who are going to be there and and be a support system for you and be Nathans in your life. So he rapes her. And then we come to verse 15. And it says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. But she said, No, my brother for this is wrong in sending me away. It's greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her, hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And and I think that's tongue in cheek there, right? We understand that he never actually loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Again, the repetition here, just like she had said to her brother, no, do not, do not, stop. This is not done. Don't do this. And now the the repetition, the emphasis here, he hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred he had was greater than the love that he had. There's feelings of, of guilt and shame that follow his sin and they're magnified by the presence of Tamar lying in his bed next to him. And he's taken an animosity that should have been directed at his sin and shifted it to the person that he felt he no longer needed. He'd gotten from her what he wanted. And now in his eyes, she was used. She was no longer enticing and unattainable because he had had her. In his eyes, she was disgusting, a reminder of his lust. So he hated her. And despite her protest and pleadings, even to be kept as a wife, because even that, as as recoiling as that would have been to so many, it, it still would have preserved some dignity for her. But he despised his sister at this point. Wouldn't listen to her pleading in orders that she be driven from his presence. It's interesting because at one point he sends out all of his servants so that he can have her. And then at another point he calls a servant in and drives her out. And she says in verse 16, this was worse than the rape. And the reason for that is by sending her out that way in shame, it would have communicated to everyone that she was the guilty party, that she was the seductress, that she was a woman of immorality. And so in sending her out, he's publicly shaming her for his sin. You know, it's, it's not that Amnon shouldn't have experienced feelings of hatred in the wake of his sin, but the feelings shouldn't have been directed at Tamar. There should have been a, a different object of Amnon's hatred, and it's point number two for us tonight. It's this, direct your hatred toward your sin. Direct your hatred toward your sin. You know, if there's a, a vitriol following the act of sin, it needs to be over the act, over our sin. We need to hate our lust hate our pride, hate our greed, hate our anger. You say, okay, well, what, what does that look like? The Apostle Paul answers this, Second Corinthians chapter 7. We've been there a couple times over the last couple weeks. Chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Excuse me, 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul there says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, and there's the word, indignation. What hatred. What a a reviling you have. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. It's the, the indignation over our sin that we need to have. Amnon was indignant over his sin against Tamar, but he took it out on her and not on his sin. Paul says this hatred, this indignation that we have, it should produce an earnestness in us to, to make things right, to correct things. It should produce an eagerness, he says, to vindicate ourselves through putting sin to death. See, I'm done with that. It's I'm done. I can't wait to have so much separation from from that sin. To be able to say, I'm completely free from that. It's not there anymore. That's repentance. That's leaving it behind. It should produce a a fear within us of falling prey to the same sin again. It should produce a, a zeal in us for holiness. And for doing the right thing. And it should produce in us a desire to be innocent from this sin forevermore. That's what true hatred of our sin produces in us. What it looks like. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. So I want to ask you, tonight, do you have a hatred for the sins in your life that looks like that? Do you have an indignation over them? Or are you comfortable with them? When you sin and you feel that that animosity towards it, that frustration, that angst, that anger, where is that directed? You know, if somebody comes up and and punches my son in the face, I'm not gonna be mad at my son, right? You'd be mad at the person that did that. We need to take our anger, our hatred in response to sin and direct it where it needs to be directed and that's at the actual sin in our life, whatever that may be. Be. Amnon instead hated Tamar. Pick back up in verse 19. It says, And Tamar put ashes on her head. Actually, back up to verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Having been rejected by Amnon, Tamar goes out mourning. And she's wearing the, 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 the robe of a virgin daughter of the king. And in her grief, she tears the robe in a sign of mourning and, and she takes the ashes and she sprinkles them on her head and she leaves with her hand on her head, which was a, a sign of mourning, a sign of grief, a sign of, of sorrow. And she goes to her brother Absalom and Absalom is able to, to conclude what took place. And he says to her an, an interesting thing. He says, do not take this matter to heart. And, and what that idiom, what that, that phrase meant there in the Hebrew was don't dwell on this thing. Don't dwell on this thing. It was almost him saying, look, I'm going to take care of things. Things are going to be okay. Don't dwell too long on this. This is not your fault. I'm going to bring you in. You're going to be okay. Now, there was only so much that he could do for her. He couldn't provide a a husband for her. He couldn't provide dignity for her. He couldn't restore her reputation, but he could take her in and make sure that she was given a, a roof over her head and food on her table. That's Absalom's immediate response, at least. But what about David? What's David's immediate response? Second Samuel thirteen, verse twenty-one. When the king heard this, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. And that's it. There's a monumental missing response from David. He's utterly silent. Why? Who knows? We don't know for sure. But fear of hypocrisy? I mean, maybe. He didn't want to risk going and confronting Amnon and having Amnon look at him and go, Dad, I'm just following in your footsteps, just doing like you taught me. Maybe that was it. Certainly, there's a lack of discipline. David, as a disciplinarian father, Fails. You look at Amnon, you look at Absalom, you you look at the the fallout from from his sin with Bathsheba, and David, and maybe all of it goes back to this, he just feels like he's not worthy to discipline after what he's done. Who knows what his his lack of motivation is, but David fails as a disciplinarian. And this is another example of this. He's not there for his daughter, and he's also not there in a disciplinarian way for his son. But Absalom was not gonna sit idly by Though he did bide his time before retaliating, as as we read these things, I mean, you just sense the disintegration. At least I hope you sense the disintegration. The David's family is, is falling apart. The things are just unraveling for the king. And again, it goes back to his sin. It's the fallout of his fall. Well, in verses 23 through 39, Absalom says, Hey, I'm going to have a celebration because he's shearing the sheep. It would have been a, a party much like you would have when you, you harvest, right? Because you're going to shear the sheep. You're going to take the wool. You're going to turn a profit. So let's celebrate this. And so Amnon or Absalom, excuse me, it, it, it extends an invitation to King David and says, Hey, dad, why don't you and, and the whole fam, why don't you guys come out to the, the sheep shearing? probably knowing that David was going to turn that one down at this point. And David says, no. And and so Absalom says, well, why don't you you go send send Amnon in my place? And and Absalom's pretty shrewd. He's pretty smart at this point. Because David, even though he's reluctant at first, eventually gives in because he's probably thinking to himself, well, it's been two years. I mean, if Absalom was going to do anything, he would have already taken this out. So sure, why not? Hey, Amnon, how did he convince Amnon to do this? That's my question. That's what I want to know. Hey, Amnon, uh, you know, Absalom, he wants to hang out with you. Take your brothers, go spend some time. Maybe maybe that was it. He thought, well, my my brothers are going to be there. Surely there's nothing that's going to happen. But the plot is is hatched. Absalom says to his servants, hey, when, when they come out and when we're celebrating and when we're partying and when Amnon has drunk a little bit too much, I want you to strike and I want you to kill him. Again, do you see the echoes of David's sin repeating itself in the lives of his children? Amnon is assassinated by his, by his brother Absalom and David's initially given false information that all of his sons were killed, were slain and he mourns greatly over that. But then there's Jonadab again because Jonadab's always there when you need him and he pops up and says, hey, don't worry about it. It's not all of your sons. It's, it's just Amnon. Clearly, Jonadab's not too broken up about Amnon and his buddy being killed by Absalom because he's right there in the king's ear looking to comfort King David in, in the wake of these things. But Absalom, meanwhile, runs And again, this is setting the stage for for everything else that's going to fall as a result of of the consequences, the fallout of David's sin. And David runs and he takes up residence in Geshur for three years. For three years. So the fallout of David's fall so far, David's daughter has been raped by his son. His daughter has become a shut-in to live out the rest of her days in shame. His son Amnon, his firstborn, was murdered by another one of his sons. And his son Absalom, who murdered his son Amnon, was now estranged from him and the family because of his actions against Amnon. This is what sin does. Again, we talked about it last week. If, if David was able to push out from the, the, the table, zoom out, so to speak, like that guy with the, the iPhone and the kidney, and, and, and able to see all of the consequences of his sin, would he have still thought it was worth it to sleep with Bathsheba that night? I would say no chance. And it continues to unravel. And sin, it, it divides, it devastates, it shames, it humiliates, it wrongs, and it hides. And these impacts of sin can, can quickly spiral out of control and leave us with broken dreams, broken testimonies, broken relationships, and it can replicate itself in the lives of the ones that we love the most. Point number three tonight is this, fear the destruction that accompanies sin, those of you who are fathers and grandfathers numbers 1418 numbers 1418 the lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation we're seeing that play out in david's life The way the Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children is by punishing the sins of the fathers that become the sins of the children. That's one of the destructive elements of sin in our lives as as men who have families who look to us. Men, what are you modeling for your children? What do they see in you? Do they see a man on fire for Christ? Do they see a man leading well? Or do they see a man who's abdicated his spiritual leadership at home? Do they see you in the word? Do they hear you pray with them? How do they see you treat your wife? These things, they're learning as they watch you, as they see you. Grandfathers, I would say the same thing for you with your grandchildren. But even if you're not a dad or a grandfather sin's destructive in the lives of those we love, is it not? I mean, think about it. Sin betrays trust. Sin fails to love. Sin promotes self. Sin dismisses counsel. Sin ignores friends. Sin says, I don't care. And sin multiplies. So here's some suggestions for you. When you sin, allow others to see you repent. It doesn't have to be in front of everybody. You don't have to come up and stand up on stage and say, I'm repenting of this sin. But have some people in your life that can see you repent. Hate your sin for what it does to others and not just to you. And this might be part of your confession. As you've repented, there may be some people that you need to go to and and confess to them and say, look, I'm sorry that I I did this because I see that this could impact you this way. Men, some of us in the room may need to have hard conversations with our kids. And to confess to our kids that we have not modeled well what it looks like to be a godly husband or what it looks like to be a godly father or what it looks like to just be a godly man and to confess that to them so that they see, okay, dad recognizes there's something wrong with the way that he's been acting, the way that he's been behaving. This is something that I need to make sure that I'm not wanting to grow up and be like dad in this area. Model brokenness over your sin. Let others see that, that you're, you're not okay with this, that this is wrong, that this is grievous, that this is something that should never have happened. And then use your failures, your sins, as opportunities to teach others. For some of you, that may be at home. For some of you, that may be in discipleship relationships. To be able to say, let me tell you, I've, I've been where you're at, and I've I've done things that I wish I hadn't done, and, and let me tell you what I've learned through walking through that so that you won't walk through that as well. I, I wish David had done those things with his sons. I wish David hadn't had to needed Nathan to come to him with that parable and confront him in such a a, a public manner. 2020 hindsight, we can't go back. God's sovereign over those things, absolutely. But I wonder if he had had a a truly biblical response to his sin, would chapter 13 have happened? Would his sin still have been as destructive if he had dealt with it to begin with with a biblical repentance? So this is the fallout of David's sin And it's beginning to rain down all around him. And I'd like to tell you that it gets better, that this is the worst, but it's not and it doesn't. So what do we do? Well, we learn, right? We learn from the negative examples. From the non-sugar-coated, non-altered examples. I mean, that's one of the things that's so great about the the Bible. One of the things that that points to its authenticity is its, its heroes have their warts thrown front and center. Don't they? But that doesn't mean we can't still learn. We need to learn from David's example on a negative side of things. We need to learn from the negative example of Amnon in Absalom. But all of this is, is again, the, the fallout of David's sin. And that roots back to something that I think a lot of this is traceable to, and that is that, that they t- took their eyes off of God. Off of everything that God had provided, off of everything that God had commanded, off of everything that God wanted and desired for them. David did that, Amnon did that, Absalom did that. And they began to be controlled by their own lust, their own desires, what they wanted, not necessarily what what God wanted. And so I think the foundational truth underneath all of this is we need to make sure that we haven't done the same thing that we need to make sure men, and maybe it's a recalibration that we need to have even tonight together is to say, look, we want to make sure that we're focused on what the Lord wants in our lives and say, I'm following him, not my own desires, not my own flesh, not my own lusts and ambitions. I think that's part of the reason why this section is recorded for us. It's God's grace written across these pages showing us what happens when we let sin run rampant in our lives, when we take our eyes off of him and his will for us and put our eyes on our own flesh and what we want instead. And so I hope we can learn from that. We can be encouraged as well, knowing that throughout this whole thing, we are still talking about the man that God looked at and said, he's a man after my own heart. We're still looking at the man who wrote Psalm thirty-two who said, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, right? And, and, and who wrote Psalm 51. I mean, this is, D- David learned a great deal from this. And if you've been where David is, you can still learn a lot through this. If you've been where Amnon is, you can learn a lot for this. There's forgiveness again, like we've been preaching the last two weeks. I'll come back to it again tonight. And hopefully for every, uh, every other message that I ever have. And that is, there's forgiveness at the cross, right? No matter where you are tonight, if, if you're saying, man, I'm an Amnon, I've blown it. Or I'm Absalom, I've blown it. You haven't. There's time. Tonight could be the night. Repent and come to Christ. Confess your sins and find forgiveness at the cross. If you're a believer out there and you've just been, you've been Amnon, you've, you've been just letting your lust run wild, tonight's the night to, to say, no, I'm going to go Second Corinthians 7 on my lust. And I'm going to have indignation over my sin and I'm going to put an end to it and I'm going to stop and I'm going to submit myself to Christ. And move forward. And so there's great hope for us. There's great hope for us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. For the harder portions of your word like this one. God, what what was done by Amnon was absolutely heinous, Lord. Lord. It should cause us to recoil. It should cause us to shudder. So Lord, I pray that we would be men that see every one of our sins though and realize that every single one of our sins needed to be paid for just as much as that one did. That as much as that one demanded your full justice, as much as that one... incurred and was worthy of your full wrath being poured out on him for all of eternity. Lord, so is every single one of our own sins. And so Lord, I pray that even such a thought as that would drive us to be so grateful for the cross, so grateful for Christ, that he has satisfied your wrath for us, that there's not a drop of your wrath left for us to drink when we stand face to face with Christ. That we can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, not because we are anything in and of ourselves, but because of what Christ has done for us. We praise God for that. Lord, I pray that we would learn lessons from this passage. That we'd be men that are fiercely on guard and fiercely zealous for our holiness, the holiness of our sisters in Christ, and the holiness of our brothers around these tables as well, Lord. May we be fiercely vigilant, to guard against every sort of temptation that may rear its head in our lives. And may you give us victory over them because as you wrote through Paul in Romans chapter six, we have been set free from sin. And now we have the power to to no longer be enslaved to that sin, to no longer present our members as instruments of sin, instruments of unrighteousness but to present ourselves daily to you to be used for you and for your glory. And so we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.